there's a lot happening, and today's message is, uh, it's a continuation of, of the conversation that we started last week um, in Foundations. Last week, we started Bible Part 1. Really, what we're doing as a church is we are um, doing a series um, that it's, it's going to next year be an actual class, um, and the class is going to be called Foundations Creatively, and we're walking through it as an entire church uh, right now. And what it is, is essentially, it is part of our mission of Northwood Church. Um, if you've been around any amount of time, you've heard our mission is to help people know God, grow in Christ, and go in the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we do that through winning the lost um, and people that have been found who have surrendered life to Jesus um, are being discipled, are growing in their faith, growing in Christ's likeness, and uh, they're being commissioned to be disciple makers. What's taking place, though, is, is a major part of growing in Christ is learning some of the foundational truths, some of the fundamental elements. I think one of the greatest attacks on Christians today, but really it's, it's always been, and we'll kind of go into that a little bit later today, is the ability to not just know what you believe, but why you believe what you believe. Uh, like knowing the ideas behind it. It's, it's giving a reason for your faith. Um, and in Christianity, is, or it's really, it's called apologetics. It's being able to give reason for your faith. So what Foundations is, and really today particularly, is it's, it's that fundamental truth. Like as you're building, there's some builders in here. And you want to make sure that what you're building on is sturdy. Um, good builders aren't just fascinated by the facade. They're not just excited about making it look pretty. Um, good builders are excited about a sturdy foundation, knowing that it's going to stand the test of time and it's going to grow and be a solid foundation for an extent to talk around a topic. The Bible part two, but the idea is, is the Bible reliable? Last week, we talked about the authority of the Bible and we kind of shared like where it's come from and just different ways that the authority of the Bible was passed down and how it still possesses authority. But as equally important as the authority of the Bible is, is this thing, this is an iPad, but my Bible is on it, but like however you have your Bible, is that actually reliable? So today we're going to have a lot of notes. Uh, you'll have some pictures on the screens behind me. We're going to talk through several different things, but when you really think about the Bible, it is an incredible work of literature. You'll see this on the, on the screens behind me that just says, what is the actual Bible? And it's a, throw that picture up there. Here you go. Here's a quick Bible overview. It's actually 66 books, but it's broken up in two parts. It's, it's 39 letters in the Old Testament. It's 27 in the New Testament. And here's the cool thing, or one of the cool things. It's composed by 40 authors. 40 authors over a 1,600-year period, and it's in unity. It's not people, one author speaking this message, another, and, and you know, how many of you remember your relatives or people you were connected to 1,600 years ago? <laughs> remember the stories, what life was like, what things were going on? There is no disagreement between these 40 authors and these 1,600 years that this was written. And it's not just a span of time, it's a span of geography as well, of places written in over 13 different countries on three different continents and three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. You see that this incredible work 
of literature, still the best-selling book of all time. It doesn't contradict itself in any way. People have tried to show how it contradicts itself, but there's an argument, there's an ability to give a reason for it not contradicting itself. Uh, Theologically, uh, morally, it doesn't contradict itself ethically or scientifically uh, or even historically, which we'll talk about here in just a minute. One article says this, it says, it records, it's talking about the Bible, it says it records the details of the creation of the universe, the origin of life, the moral law of God, the history of man's rebellion against God, and the historical details of God's work of redemption for all who trust in his Son. Moreover, the Bible claims to be God's revelation to mankind. If true, this has implications for all aspects of life. How we should live, our meaning and purpose is. We say, okay, if, this is, if that's true... This is a big deal, but how do we know that what the Bible claims is actually true? So today, I'm going to do my best to to whet your appetite on this. Like, there's no way I can satisfy all those questions and thoughts and reliability of the Word of God in 35 minutes. But we will open up a lot of thoughts because our faith hinges on the Bible being accurate and reliable. Can we all agree that if it's not reliable, then what we are doing even in this moment is really insignificant. (laughs) But if it is, then we really need to anchor ourselves in this. You know, so I currently serve on our team in in a few different titles, in a few different roles. I'm the lead pastor here at Northwood Church in Long Beach, I do have the privilege of serving on our executive team and also oversee student ministries. And one thing that has been true for a really long time, but I'm seeing more and more truth in as the days progress, is as people graduate, there's something that happens in your junior and senior year, and when you launch into college, there is this exposure of a lot of opinions and objections to the Word of God. Sometimes it comes through education. A lot of times right now it just comes through through social media. Uh, It's amazing what your algorithms begin to feed you. Uh, Me and Joel and a few other guys, we record podcasts weekly. And just because of the content that we're discussing, um, some of the content that we're discussing from a biblical lens, uh, the content is just populating from a non-biblical lens, and it's combating the truth um, that we believe is possessed by the Word of God. But a lot of times, students that go into college, and maybe this is part of your story, you're confronted with some ideas or thoughts that aren't exactly what you learned in Sunday school. Some of the arguments coming out right now are the thoughts or things being communicated or things like the Bible's inaccurate. Just, Just flat out, it's said... Or that it's, it's just it's a work of fiction, uh, that it contradicts itself. Um, a, a popular phrase that's being used right now to talk about the Bible is that it's used to manipulate the masses. Um, and, and I'm okay if, if you're in here and you're like, I kind of think that. We're going to talk about that 
today. It's not really going to be conversation because it'd be weird if you talked back, but I'd invite it. Uh, no, but I'd be cool if, if you want to talk about these things. To Let's get in some dialogue. Um, others say that it's just another history that they're being told how other works of ancient literature invalidates the Bible. Example for you guys. There's, this has been going on for a really long time, but it's, it's an increasing argument again that um, there's a whole lot of people, there's a whole lot of religions, a whole lot of historical accounts or historical works of literature that talk about a flood story. How are we right? There's things that are being talked about in college right now, the Epic of Gilgamesh, and some of you are like, what? That sounds like a, a, a movie. Uh, or it's a, it's a theory out there, um, but there's, there's other flood stories out there. Um, that say, this flood event took place. And Christians, uh, I, I think we need to do better at acknowledging, I think it would be weird if Christianity was the only group saying a historical flood took place. I think the fact that others are saying a historical flood did take place actually affirms our stance in the Bible. If we were all saying this happened and everybody else was like, no it didn't, no it didn't, there's no proof of that. But what's being used as, as arguments uh, are simply attempts to destabilize our faith. So we need to anchor our, for some of you, what just took place, that, that little moment that literally just, oh, yeah, it's good that other people say that that took place too. That would be tough on my faith if no one else ever said it. How that kind of solidified some things in you. I think we need to do a better job at destabilizing other arguments, but then firming, firming up our foundation. That can come through a lot of different resources that we're going to attempt to make available for you guys. But also, it takes being a student of the Word of God and even history a lot. There's a book out there by John Curate. It's called Against the Gods that I think is a good resource on, on the flood narrative, but some of those other ideas that really combats universalism and some of the ideas that uh, this religion, this religion, this religion, or this, this type of worship, and it kind of gives biblical truth. So, have you ever wondered, okay, so like that objection I just brought up, have you ever thought, are those objections valid though? Who says, who says that we got it right? I want to encourage you in this, and you'll see it on the screen. We need to become very good at being skeptical of our skepticism. We need to be skeptics of the things that we are skeptical about uh, for instance, people take the theory of Charles Darwin and act like it's fact. This theory, and they act like it's fact. When he actually says in one of his letters, here, here's a quote. I don't know if this is on the screen, but this is what Charles Darwin wrote towards the end of his life. He said, within me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions are of any value or at all trustworthy. This man that many people build their existence on and their belief system around, himself says, I'm not completely convinced that what comes out of our minds is actually trustworthy at all or if it's of any value. And skepticism is not something new. It's not like, oh, this is this, is this generation's problems. It's like, oh, I, I pity students now because it's really tough. It's always been like this. Um, when <laughs> you, you go read the Bible, Jude actually is a letter from Jesus' half-brother, and he is attacking heretics. 
that are talking about the Bible, and they're talking about the life of Jesus, and they're saying everything was good except for the resurrection. The resurrection's not that big of a deal. And Jude's writing this letter of correction because there were people that were skeptical of the truth of the resurrection. You've got an Acts 17, you've got Paul at Mars Hill, you've got Peter. Uh, he's the one that says we need to be able to give reason for our faith. You've got uh, the skeptics, even in the garden, at the very beginning, skepticism enters in when the serpent says to Adam and Eve, did God really say this? Skepticism has always been around and that's why I think a message like this, just about some of the fundamental, just facts about the Bible, the realities of the Bible are so important because what those do for us is they have the potential to firm up our faith. Just when you learn about certain things, when you become a student of something, you know it that much better. I think we are called to be students of the Word of God, but also students of the historicity and, and where the Word of God came from. And you'll see this uh, in just a second. I want to share with you how we actually got the Bible today. Like, how did you end up with this book in your hands or, or whatever you've got right here? The question is, how did we get the Bible today? And it came through this process of of how the books of the Bible like were selected and compiled, and it's this word called canonization. And what it was is there was a whole lot of Jewish rabbis, uh, scholars, early church leaders that selected the books, because there were a lot of letters that were written to the, we call them books, they were actually letters from people. They were uh, historical accounts, or words that God had given man to write down as messages from God. And what took place is these rabbis, these scholars, these early church leaders selected the books, and they had to meet certain criteria. Criteria was this. They had to be written by uh, apostolic authors, uh, people that were directly uh, associated with the apostles, or like early church leaders. They had to be authored by them because they were very, very connected to the room and just snaked back. And then worked our way up here. If we had time, it'd be really fun to do. But like, and like you say a phrase over here, and it's something totally different over here. It's like, oh, I was the one that always sabotaged it in the middle. Okay, because I was that type of person, I wouldn't have made it in the canonization. Okay, but what was going on is it was meticulously looked at. They had to teach the orthodox faith of the apostles. And what had to happen is these letters had to be widely accepted in the earliest churches from the very beginning. So you've got this group of letters that have undergone this or were undergoing this canonization process for a really long time. And the Bible that we have today was actually canonized officially through a series of councils and all those groups of people in the late 4th century. So you've got this incredible amount of, uh, they said there were healthy Christian disagreements over books. Like they'd go to battle over some of these. They'd talk about these things, talk about the source, talk about is this authoritative. Uh, again, there's a, a really good resource out there uh, on YouTube. Uh, not everything on YouTube is the devil. I think YouTube is incredible. Um, but there's a resource called How Did We Get the Bible? It's from Southern Seminary. 
uh, that I think is worth looking at. If you're like, you want more about this, it's a great uh, video. It's about an hour long uh, that I, I think would be a great resource for you. But so you've got this Bible, and you just said, Micah, that it was written in three different languages. And the truth is, I'm not reading in Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic. So how in the world am I getting this English version of the Bible? What happened is, uh, and you'll see a timeline behind me that kind of paints a picture for you, but what happened is Latin replaced Greek in the first few centuries in the Roman Empire. This is just a, a history lesson for you. Try to not get all the way to the end yet. Let me kind of walk you through it. You're like, okay, done, fat, next thing. You know, um, So Latin replaced Greek in the Roman Empire in the first few centuries. So what took place in 405 AD, the Bible was translated into Latin. That's the Latin Vulgate. If you've ever heard that phrase, that's 405 AD. In 1384, John Wycliffe, look at him, looking stoic, looking at you guys, he translated the Latin Vulgate into English. A historical moment. In the 1450s, a new technology came out, the printing press, which changed everything. In the 1450s, instead of uh, text being copied by hand, the printing press makes its debut, and people start to say it would be incredible if we could mass produce this Bible, this English Bible that is changing my life. I want to, a man named William Tyndale was the first to translate the Bible to English directly from Hebrew. So what he did, uh, it, it, what was going on, English had been translated in 1384. It was translated in English from Latin. What Tyndale did is he went back to the original scripts, Hebrew and Greek, and what he did is he went straight from the source and translated the Bible into English, and he wanted to mass produce this thing. And because he translated from Hebrew to Greek and because he was making some bold decisions that were different, he was executed. He was killed. He was a martyr for the sake of the gospel. Uh, what happened, though, three years later is that King Henry VIII said, you know what? What Tyndale was talking about was a good idea. We're going to go on and mass produce this thing. And they began printing the English Bible. In 1611, the King James Version was completed. And the King James Version was the first um, widely used Bible translation um, that we see. Now, we look at our translations today, and the truth is the Bible is still being actively translated. Uh, it's not just in other, uh, like you've got ESV and New King James Version. There's some great resources that explain that a little bit more. But as of right now, according to Wycliffe.org, um, there's belief that there's just over 1,600 languages still in need of Bible translations. That's October of 2022. That's a stat. That there's still 1,600 translations that are needed for people to receive the Bible in their language. Uh, last year, those of you that went to the Motion Student Conference, um, there was an offering taking up. And uh, the offering was we were committed as a student conference. I think it was us and, what, 17,000 students? Was that how many was there, M? Something like that. Somebody like, that sounds terrible or awesome, depending on. We were there, and we wanted to raise enough money to translate the Bible for one of those people groups. 
Um, by the end of the day, they said, y'all, we've raised enough to translate it twice. So I don't know if that number includes that. It might be 1,598. But there are still a lot of languages out there that need the translation, uh, the word of God in there. But that's how we actually got the Bible that we have right now. That's the, some of the historical side of it. But what I want to do for a few moments, and, and again, my goal here is to whet the appetite for you guys. I realize that we cannot go through every single detail on this, but I want to give you a few reasons why we believe this. We're going to look at manuscript evidence, and we're going to look at scientific evidence. I promise this will be more interesting than those two words made you think this will be. Okay, so manuscript evidence. Let's start here. You'll see this picture uh, behind me. I believe this is this papyri. This is a, a plant-based paper. This is what the Bible would have originally, the letters that were written to churches would have been written on this type of paper. So this is, this is what a lot of manuscripts that have been discovered are actually written on. This next one that you see is a small fragment. This is the smallest fragment that we have of the New Testament. This is called P52. <laughs> You're like, why is it called P52? That's the labeling system. And um, this was written around 130 AD. It's John chapter 18. We've got this as a stored uh, historically. And uh, I'll talk about how this is just kind of putting pictures in your head. The next thing that you see looks like a pretty complete book. This is actually, it's called Codex Vaticanus. This is the oldest um, complete copy of the Greek and Hebrew Old Testament and uh, New Testament. It's 792 pages of, of paper. It's like parchment and calfskin. This is actually 4th century right here. It's stored in the Vatican, in Rome. These are some of the things that uh, have been discovered. This is some manuscript evidence that exists right now. And what's amazing is when you start to see these types of things, it bolsters your faith. It's amazing how one picture can bolster faith. And I want to kind of tell you how just historically, not just with the Bible, but with, with manuscript reliability has been determined in the past. Because there's this thing called the, it's called the bibliographical test. And what it does is it examines Stuff like that, manuscript reliability, and it does it in three different ways. This is how you can determine if things are historically reliable. The first thing in this test, what they do is they examine how many copies do we have of the original. Like of the original thing, how many copies of this do we have? What takes place after that is they look at the copies and they measure the time stamp on them. They measure the age of them. And what they do is they look at the, the time gap between uh, the originals and the existing copies. So you want to be as close to the original as possible to guarantee authenticity, to guarantee um, like a congruency. Like it's good to be as close to the original. A lot of you that may collect different things, you want the first edition of certain things. It's especially when it comes to historical documents. But with those two things in mind, then the next test of it is how accurate is the copy to the original? And imagine having a load of copies that all vary in different ways in comparison to the original. All of a sudden, the trust in all of these copies 
is wavered, and then it destabilizes something. So how does the Bible actually measure up to other works of antiquity? This isn't just a bibliographical manuscript evidence right now. We're taking other manuscripts and copies of historical books. You'll see a graph or a table on the screen behind me, and what you see is how many different copies of manuscripts that we have based on these types of things. You have Tacitus Annals right there. And what this is, is there's 36 copies of the original out there. Plato's Tetralogies, there's 238. Some of the things that are taught with so much conviction. You see how many copies there are. Caesar's Gallic Wars, 251 Homers. This is the Iliad, has Wow, a 1,900 of them. But then when you get to the New Testament, you see, and this number has changed over the years because we've continued to discover more. Not me. I'm making myself sound. Wow, Micah, you've discovered? No. <laughs> but others have. 5,795 copies of the originals. With those numbers right there, we'd say, wow, that's a ton of copies. How close in proximity to the original are these copies the next picture shows the distance in years. Tacitus Annals, you see Plato's work around 200 years being the gap. You see Caesar's Gallic Wars, a 950-year gap. The Iliad, Homer's, a 385-year gap. And some of those documents that you saw just a moment ago get as close to a 45-year gap to the very original. It's written. All of these copies, in addition to that, there's close to 25,000 fragments and copies of the total New Testament. There's 66,000 fragments of the whole Bible. And the amazing thing is, there's no variance. There's no variance. In any of those documents, there's no variance. The closest thing to variance and even great critics of the word of God says the variances in these things, they're literally like commas. It's nothing that changes the message. There's an incredible resource out there on YouTube called Fragments of Truth. Um, there's great Bible software that you can learn more about that as well. That's just some manuscript evidence. Let me get into, for a few moments with you, some scientific evidence. This is going to make you think I'm way smarter than I actually am. But the truth is, this is extremely important to us. The Bible isn't a science textbook. Let me just start by saying that. But it's important to know that science does not disprove the Bible. Actually, many scientists affirm that the Bible is a reliable source. And they do it through a variety of things. But here's some examples. Astronomy, for instance. Dr. Robert Jastrow who's an astronomer, uh, a physicist. He was a former director of NASA. He said this. Now, he is not a believer, but uh, he, he's by definition a, a materialist. But this is what Dr. Robert Jastrow said. He said, astronomers now find that they've painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star every plant, every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth. 
and they have found that all this happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover. That there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. Dr. Robert Jastrow. In Job chapter 9, verse 8, it talks about how the heavens were being stretched out. It says that the earth hangs from nothing, which refers to earth's suspension in space. Scientists are now beginning to catch up with things that were said thousands of years ago in this reliable book. We did a message series called What Do You Believe? And we did a particular message called Does God Exist? I would encourage you, if you're like, hey, I want to hear more about this, go find that on our YouTube channel or our podcast as well. Uh, there's a Christian astrophysicist named Hugh Ross. Um, that's a great resource here. Um, there's something called Reasons to Believe that he produces. I think that's a great resource. But scientifically or astronomically, I think there's an argument. Archaeologically, I think there is as well. What archaeology is this, it's the study of human activity through recovering and analyzing like different material that you re recover. Uh, Nelson Gluick is a Jewish archaeologist, and he says this. He says, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a biblical reference. That's encouraging. One of the greatest discoveries in, in this category happened in 1947 with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, these Dead Sea Scrolls date back to 100 B.C., that's not A.D., that's B.C., and what is so incredible about them is that these artifacts or these things that have been recovered that were written thousands of years after that or hundreds of years after that, these things that were written before Christ are in complete agreement with the Old Testament manuscripts that we have. Some that we have dated 1,000 A.D., We've got these things proves the reliability of the Hebrew copies to the Old Testament copies that exist today. Um, last year, what some archaeologists say was the best discovery of 2022 was this discovery that took place on a mountain that at one time uh, people said didn't even exist, but once it was discovered that it did exist, it's called the Cursed Tablet. And on this Cursed Tablet, uh, there's, there's inscriptions on it. The, the significance of this is in this region and in other world religions, there's an argument out there that the words Yahweh and El were two different gods, that they, don't, they weren't describing the same God. And this has been a powerful argument and one that's taken. Uh, it's one of those that um, certain religions have stood on and said, see, this is what we're talking about. It's talking about this God and this God. There's multiple gods in the universe. Well, on the cursed tablet, it talks about El and Yahweh being a singular God. It talks about Elohim. It talks about Yahweh, and it speaks of them interchangeably. And all of a sudden, this argument that stood for hundreds of years instantly silenced because of an archaeological discovery. Again, 
great resources out there, biblicalarchaeology.org, uh, the armstronginstitute.org, really good um, resources out there when it comes to that. Two more of these scientific evidences for you. Anthropology, which is the study of humanity and like, like how societies became what they are and what they're like, what they were like. And it's, it's studying how they are now, but what they were like then. Um, the Smithsonian Department of Anthropology, some of you are like, yeah, you're, you're quoting Christian astrophysicists. Here's the Smithsonian for you. They say this, much of the Bible, in particular the historical books of the Old Testament, are as accurate historical documents as any that we have from antiquity and are in fact more accurate than many of the Egyptian, Mesopotamian, or Greek histories. These biblical records can be and are used as are other ancient documents in archaeological work. The Smithsonian says that. Biblical examples of that is in Genesis 10 with the Table of Nations, which, which historians believe this is the most concise rendering of the distribution of languages of 70 different nations um, that are distributed. But that's in Genesis 10 that begins to speak of these types of things. Again, this is but a taste of how evidence that we use in every other field or to prove any other thought validate the authority, but also, if not more importantly, the reliability of the Bible. The last point that I'll make today, scientific evidence is around biology. Biology. Some of you are like, I cannot believe we're talking about biology in church. It's the, it's the study of, of living things. Scriptures themselves contain, contain in even health sciences Louis Pasteur, he was a microbiologist. He's the one that discovered pasteurization. He said this, A bit of science distances one from God, but much science nears one to him. He says, The more I study nature, the more I stand amazed at the work of the Creator. In the 1900s, people we're trying to figure out how to get illness out of people. And there are a lot of different methods out there. People were getting poisoned or they were getting contaminated. So it was this bright idea in the, in the early 1900s, something called bloodletting. Anybody know what that is? Cool. Everybody under 25 was like, <laughs> nope. So what it was, it was this practice. You got poison or you're ill or you got some virus. What you need to do is you need to get blood out of your body. And like a lot of it. The more you get out, the more likely you are to get rid of the poison. So people were bloodletting and uh, they were dying because they were losing all of their blood. Uh, little did they know that like blood is important for the body. Uh, <laughs> didn't think it would be a comedic sketch, but like, we're all like, well, yeah, of course. That's the 1900s, y'all. Like, this isn't far from us. We're not much smarter than that. Leviticus 17, thousands of years ago, says this phrase, life is in the blood. Health professionals discovered this in the early 1900s. <laughs> it's all throughout the Word of God. There's people that have gone on a study 
to disprove the reliability of the Bible. And as they've attempted to do that, they've only come to the conclusion that there is nothing more reliable than the Bible. This message is designed to be foundational in your faith. It's that as you read things in the Word of God, that you can have a confidence in the reality that this scripture is actually breathed out by God. It's so that you can have a confidence when you read things like 2 Timothy that says, this Bible, this teaching, is, it's profitable for you, for reproof, for teaching, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It says if you follow the path that the word of God, the Bible, this reliable a person of God, you will be complete and you will be equipped for every good work. These are the types of messages that stabilize our faith. When the world is saying this is unreliable, my prayer is that God would take somehow this lecture type conversation and it would remind us and as archaeology digs are continued to be navigated by using the Bible as a template and discoveries are made that we wouldn't be fascinated at the discovery but we would be fascinated and awed by the reality that God is involved and has always been involved with his creation. That he gave us this incredible work that took over 1,600 years to compose with 40 different authors in three countries, three continents, 30 countries, that 66 books so that we would have a template that showed us how to live but that we would have a book that comes alive when you read it, that the author himself is present with you as you read it. The Bible, not only authoritative, ingests the word of God and allows it to transform us as our mind is renewed through the powerful, incredible New York Times bestseller known as the Bible. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. God, I pray that you would take these conversations and God, that they would be foundational. God, I pray for those that have struggled with this idea. If this is real, if this is reliable, God, I pray that this and God, your Holy Spirit, God, would set the anchor deep. God, I pray especially over the next generation of believers. God, I pray that you would give them a confidence in the word of God like never before. That it's not just another take it or leave it book. But God, it is the very source of truth. God, I pray that as people are searching for you in the word of God, that they will find you. God, I pray that you would make it alive. Come alive in them, God. God, I pray that you would use the word not to just authenticate our faith, but God, to correct us to train us, to reprove us, to help us know you more, to help us grow in becoming more like Jesus. And God, that the word of God would empower us. God, equip us to do the work of ministry. God, I people say, okay, I'm gonna give it a shot. God, that you speak to them through your word. As they go on journeys, they become students of the word. Oh, that you would find them. And God, that their faith 
would be a firm foundation. I thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.